This is The Conversation. I'm Lynn Waters, sitting in for Catherine Cruz. With just two weeks to go until Hawaii's general election, how can we make sure that everyone gets to participate? The Conversation's Savannah Harriman-Pote sat down with reporter Sabrina Bowden this morning to discuss the new statewide voters with special needs committee. Ballots have gone out to voters across the state, and HBR reporter Sabrina Bowden looks at the topic of accessibility for our mail-in election. Good morning, Sabrina. Good morning, Savannah. So when Hawaii moved to a mail-in ballot election, there were questions about how this can be accessible to those with disabilities. The Statewide Voters with Special Needs Committee is a new state advisory group that was stood up earlier this year to address just that. They've met three times this year so far. Uh, Member Katie Keem is blind, and when I talked to her last week, she shared some of the challenges she would face in trying to vote privately and independently. As an individual who is blind, I received a paper ballot. I um, would have to get somebody to help me mark the ballot. But Hawaii had some akamai about them enough to actually give the option of an electronic ballot which works very easily as a blind individual with my screen reading software on my computer. But then I had to print it out, and I had to sign a secrecy waiver, which then had no secrecy for me, no privacy. It opened up who I was voting, who I was voting for, and I had to print both those out and put them in the ballot envelope And then I had to figure out where to sign the line. And there was a hole, and I had to make sure the colored paper was showing and all the things that a sighted individual can see to do, but I cannot. Do we know how many voters in the state might be in a position similar to Katie? So these types of issues aren't as uncommon as you may think. And according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about one in five adults in Hawaii have a disability, whether it's cognitive, physical, or developmental. Oftentimes, Katie says, it's able-bodied friends or neighbors who want to help somebody who's looking for, or they want to help somebody who are looking for information on resources. So one of the action items the committee wants to tackle is getting more information on accessible voting said or written down in the same places. So when you see a sign that says where a voter service center may be open, maybe also having the information on how to access electronic voting or how to get a hold of the office or larger printed ballots may be helpful. And we want that language everywhere, in all their brochures, all their material, all their PSAs, every media outreach. We want it stated openly, boldly in there, as much as for the general public. Because otherwise, how are you going to get to the people with disabilities? They're they're going to think, oh, well, I can't do that because I have whatever their personal barrier challenges are. Um, when they hear a PSA about voting, whether it's TV, radio, newspaper, or they see brochures or posters uh, during campaigns. I mean, there's a vast way that Office of Elections is posting material on how to vote in Hawaii. But we're not listed. And I mean, we as in individuals with disabilities or the statewide and county special needs committees specifically addressing these issues. 
So the committee has a survey up on its website on the Office of Elections site that has just four questions, and it's a survey to better gauge the needs of voters in Hawaii. And it's meant to get to people who may be in hard-to-reach places, like people who aren't registered or who don't know how to. And Pat Morrissey is also a member of the Statewide Voters of Special Needs Committee. And since the committee is in its first year of five, she says this period is kind of a discovery period to learn how the state handles its elections and how the committee can work with the state in the future. I've learned over the years, I've been involved in a lot of committees that were newly formed, that the first phase is just to figure out how to build a relationship and discover what the operational parameters are. And over time, then you can develop a genuine partnership. And I think that the the fact that they are, uh, they, they have a web page for us on their website is good. And the obligation is on us to, you know, fill that out over time and, and help them. And I think that's the way we all feel about it. You know, that we're, we're all in this together and hopefully uh, we'll be able to bring about some things that need to change for the benefit of voters with disabilities. Yeah. And the committee meets again in December and that will be the fourth time that they've met. They're only obligated to meet once a year, but they're kind of going above and beyond this first year to try to get it started. I can appreciate that, especially when you're considering that our election is November 8th. Can you just briefly reiterate what resources will be available before the committee meets in December? So you can go to the Office of Elections website and you can find out information on how to get larger printed ballots. Um, You can get ballots in other languages as well as access to an electronic ballot if you need that. And this is not our first mail-in election, so I assume we're doing a little bit of catch-up in terms of meeting all the needs of all of our voters in Hawaii. This is a five-year advisory committee. Do they have any specific goals that they've stated for what they hope to achieve in that time? Well, one of them is to sort of get this survey up and off the ground to begin with so that they know what stages they need to hit or what groups are mostly affected by voting. And the committee has specific groups who are supposed to be on the committee. Uh, Katie is one of somebody who's blind. I believe there's somebody who they're trying to get for uh, mobile disabilities as well. That is HBR reporter Sabrina Bowden. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Savannah. You can find all of Sabrina Bowden's reporting and our complete election guide at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe. In today's Backyard Quiz, we test your knowledge on the history of Hawaii schools. We're looking specifically at the first school, 
founded in 1831. This institution is not only the oldest in the islands, but also housed Hawaii's first printing press in the Hale Pa'i, or House of Printing. Credited with producing a plethora of reading materials, including books, newspapers, and magazines, it was home to the island's first newspaper, Kalama, the Torch, founded in 1834. That is the oldest newspaper west of the Rocky Mountains. This school has a storied reputation for educating the earliest scholars and leaders of Hawaiian history and culture, along with respected government officials. All subjects at this school were initially taught in Olelo Hawaii, the Hawaiian language, before English became the medium of instruction in 1849. The school was initially a seminary for young men and then began admitting women in 1923. For today's quiz, what is the name of this school? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. This is The Conversation. I'm Lynn Waters, sitting in for Catherine Cruz today. One of the political races getting attention around the state is the contest for the Maui mayor's office. Incumbent Mike Victorino and retired Judge Richard Bisson were the top two vote-getters in the primary election, with Bisson outpolling Victorino by a slight margin. This week on The Conversation, you'll hear from both candidates, starting with the challenger. Richard Bisson retired as a circuit court judge at the end of last year, and along with his opponent, says that housing is the biggest issue facing residents of Maui County. Bisson wants to create what he calls a homeowner's exemption. This would apply to a resident who makes the home his or her primary residence and agrees to live there, and would result in a $200,000 reduction in the appraised value of the home, therefore lowering the property tax. Bisson told HPR's Bill Dorman the idea of his five-point housing plan is to think locally and not just focus on price. We want the focus to be on who's buying the home and who's living in the home, not how much the home costs. Because if you sell a home that's affordable to somebody who's not from here, you really haven't done anything to help our local population. So uh, our first uh, of the five-point plan is to take an inventory of appropriate land to build. Because what we know on Maui is the two things that, that, that stifle home ownership or, or our issue here is where to build it and who to sell it to. So I think we address the where to build it by having an inventory of land uh, that the county puts in the infrastructure. And you're hearing everybody say this today uh, that hasn't been saying this in the past. The county puts in the infrastructure, the roads, the water, the sewer, again, to drive prices down. We uh, require that they have a homeowner's exemption. But here's the important part. You can sell that home 
a week after you buy it, a year after you buy it, 20 years after you buy it. But you must sell it to someone else who qualifies for a homeowner's exemption. That's how we keep those homes in the, uh, in the local resident. So the point on the county paying for the infrastructure, how would that be funded? Through, through county money. The county does that now. We have an affordable housing fund uh, that our charter requires 3% of the budget to be put into that. This past year, the council, they can go higher. They, I think they allotted 4 or 4.5%. So there's an affordable housing fund that can be used for, for several purposes. But the infrastructure that the county puts in is pretty common in most other places, most municipalities. We're one of those rare places that we were able to convince the developers to put in the roads, the sewer, the water, the schools, the parks, the shopping centers, in exchange for granting them their permit to build. And that's what's driven our prices up, because all of that is going to translate into the cost of the home. So if we're truly trying to get local Kamaina people into homes, if that's really what we're trying to do, then we have to be as creative as possible to drive the home prices down. But that's our long-term plan. Our immediate plan is accessory dwelling units, ADUs, cottages, ohanas. The key to having an accessory dwelling unit, and under a business administration in our first 180 days, we're going to approve 100 permits. We're going to approve 100 permits. By doing so, uh, the way we're going to do so is by having pre-approved plans, studio, one-bedroom, two-bedroom. If you choose one of those pre-approved plans and you're hooking up to the county water and sewer, we're going to approve those permits for you and your property. That's the quickest, cheapest, easiest way to get houses for our local people is by allowing those cottages to be built. Um, we have not been taking advantage of that. And I guess the key I want to say, Bill, is existing infrastructure. Existing infrastructure is the key, taking advantage of what's already there. You know, you talk about infrastructure needed. Part of that infrastructure is professional. Do you have confidence that there's the professional staffing ability to deal with the permitting of the project that you're talking about? Well, I think the professionals are going to come from the ones who build it. What we're lacking, uh, and I guess we have a shortfall, just like the state, the country, and the world. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an employee's market right now, I guess you would say. I mean, we're just trying to get bodies. For, for some of our positions, we're we're 100 police officers short uh, in our in our county, um, and I'm certain we have openings um, in our different county departments. You know, professionalism comes from training and experience, but it also comes from expectation, and I think that has to come from the leadership where we we demand it and require it. Uh, we got to put the service back into customer service, so we can do a better job. Uh, we can always do a better job. And again, not pointing the finger at any individual or any department. Um, but again, professionalism starts with service uh, and an attitude that when you walk through the door, how can I help you get your permit? Not how can I stall you from getting your permit or how can I, um, you know, do I have to do this? I mean, can you come back on another day? I mean, um, of course, they're going to be frustrated and that's going to be their perception of interaction with county government. Uh, so, of course, I think it starts with leadership, as I said, and uh, and that's where I come in. One other area that arguably requiring a creative approach on tourism, 
no other county in the state's as dependent on tourism as Maui. Destination management plans are in place. You've said that you support those. But beyond those plans, what would you do to balance the economic benefits of tourism with the living conditions of local residents? Yeah, I mean, clearly, uh, the the tourist industry is our is our number one economic driver, no question about it. It contributes, um, you know, probably over fifty percent of our of our tax revenue. Um, I'm told eighty percent of every dollar spent is somehow connected to the visitor industry. But we also understand that that same uh, business also uh, can have impacts on our infrastructure, on our resources. And of course, um, our quality of life you know, for our locals. So, you know, there's been talk in the Maui destination, Maui Nui destination plan of regenerative tourism, uh, educating our tourists uh, in better ways, having them help to give back to the community when they come here. You know, the buzz used to be, I, I recall, uh, ecotourism, mm-hmm. and then it became uh, sustainable tourism. And, and, and I guess the latest version is regenerative i think i get the concept well i get the concept not 100 percent sure how it would be implemented but uh, you know we, we may have tourists especially return tourists who would feel like uh, working in a lo'i or working in a fish pond or, or you know doing something on their vacation more than just laying on the beach and so i i, I think that's a good approach uh, but managing our tourist population is going to require for example, uh, what you folks do in Honolulu, where you have a, a reservation system for, say, Hanauma Bay, we have reservations that are required for Halekala National Park, very, very popular place to visit. Uh, but I think when people know, well, if I go that time of year, I won't be able to see the sun, the sunrise, I won't be able to get there, so let me uh, alter my trip, my plans, uh, so that I can get, you know, make a reservation, and then, you know, we can, we can fly there during that time. Maui County Council is moratorium on construction of new hotels. How do you feel about that approach? You know, I prefer incentives rather than moratoriums, just as a, as a general principle. Um, I understood what I think the goal was, that if you built uh, fewer hotel rooms, that less people will come because they won't have somewhere to stay. That has not proven to be the case uh, because we have so many uh, vacation rentals. Now, the good news is they have put a cap on uh, vacation rentals. Okay, let's step back for one second. You kind of kind of know the history of Maui. When, when our mayor was Elmer Cavallo, he built Kanapali Resort. His idea was the tourists will come and they will stay in the resort area. And, of course, that, ha- that hasn't happened. But even the vacation rentals were supposed to be limited to those areas as well. And we now know with, with the evolution uh, that you know, people can hold have a vacation rental in any neighborhood, including residential. That's where the issue comes home to roost because now you put all that pressure on, again, infrastructure and resources, and then people get upset. You've talked about developing alternative industries away from an over-dependence on tourism. What specifically would you do in that area for Maui County? You know, I think for us, we, we recognize that we're not a manufacturing society here on Maui. We would more be a knowledge base, right? We went through agriculture with sugarcane and pineapple. We went through tourism or tourists, and now we're at that stage where we want to find other ways to uh, keep our keep our locals home. When you say knowledge-based economy, what does that mean to you? Again, it's a, it's a phrase that we hear a lot, but how, how in, in your eyes and in your vision to apply that for Maui County? What we learned during the pandemic 
is how many people came from around the world to do their business here because they were all doing it virtually. They were able to do their business on our island. We had a, such an influx. And when you would talk to people, even local people who returned home during the pandemic saying, well, I had a friend work for NASA. He said, oh, I can do my work from here on my computer. So why can't we do that? Why can't we just have businesses here on Maui that start with that? So the knowledge base I'm talking about is virtual. What would you bring to the mayor's position when it comes to leadership that you feel isn't there now? Well, first of all, I think active leadership. I think uh, leaders should meet with their team. I think it's sort of the gold standard to have weekly meetings with your, in this case, directors or your leadership team. So I think mostly my leadership skills of collaborating, uh, decision-making, being bold, being balanced, I think I attract a lot of different types of the community. This is truly a nonpartisan race for me. I've never registered for a political party, uh, although I'm a political science major. I never had any interest, never needed to. So I feel like I attract uh, people from all sides who just want good governance. They just want someone with no strings attached who has a history of making good decisions for the community, for our community at large. And why are you running now? What led you to challenge Mayor Victorina? We're in a crisis. Um, You know, I spent 35 years in government service, uh, to be exact, 34 years and eight months, when I retired from the bench at the end of 2021. And again, uh, rather than hang up the, the skills or put them in a box and on a shelf, the leadership skills that I've attained and that I've had a chance to work in real life situations, uh, I felt that the county could use uh, better leadership, uh, leadership for uh, the mid-management. And I mentioned to you, uh, you know, we run a program, the mayor says that you know, his directors meet once a month with the managing director. I, I don't see that as active leadership. I see that as very passive leadership. Uh, all the teams I've been on, whether I was the leader or I was the follower, you know, weekly meetings with, with key members is, is how you keep informed and how you prevent things from going from bad to worse and how you head things off. And so for me, uh, what I'm accustomed to is, is using leadership in an active way. I'm running because of my three grandsons. They're 10, 7, and 1. And while I never thought twice about being able to live here on Maui when I grew up or on Molokai, Olanai, I always, uh, I, I now think it's questionable. So many people are leaving our state in our community, our county, uh, and that's because they can't afford to live here and stay here. And I'm going to do everything in my power to try to reverse that. I think we owe it to our young, our young generation and those coming up uh, to leave this place as, as good as we had it. And uh, uh, it, it's almost impossible to predict that, but I think, uh, I think we owe it to the next generation. And that's why I'm running. That was Maui mayoral candidate and retired circuit court judge Richard Bisson with HPR's Bill Dorman. Tomorrow, you'll hear Bill's conversation with incumbent Maui mayor Mike Victorino. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, reopening the Doris Duke Theater with art house films from around the world, live performances, and more, reflecting Hawaii's cultures and communities. HonoluluMuseum.org theater. 
on the next Fresh Air, sports writer, broadcaster, and commentator Jamel Hill. When she was co-host of ESPN's Sports Center in 2017, she ignited a controversy by calling Donald Trump a white supremacist in a tweet. She's now a contributing writer for The Atlantic, and she has a new memoir called Uphill. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. The general election on November 8th is just around the corner. Turn to HPR to follow our election coverage and study up on the candidates and issues that matter to you. Access our free voter guide at hawaiipublicradio.org vote. This is The Conversation, and I'm Lynn Waters sitting in for Catherine Cruz today. Now it's time for our reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Anita Hofschneider looks at a push by federal representatives to expand data collection in the U.S. territories. Good morning, Anita. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me, Lynn. Absolutely. So I must confess, I did not know that there was a uh, void here, that these unincorporated territories, many former trust territories, were not thoroughly counted. I'm assuming for censuses and labor statistics and so forth. Why has it been this way? So that's a big question. You know, it kind of goes back to the history of the U.S. territories and, you know, why we have them and what's different from uh, how they're different from being a state. And, you know, currently these five uh, territories, Puerto Rico, American Samoa, Virgin Islands, Guam, and the Northern Mariana Islands, are considered unincorporated, as you mentioned, which means that the full U.S. Constitution doesn't um, apply to them the way that the Constitution applies to, say, Hawaii. And they aren't included in a lot of federal programs. So, for example, there was an interesting uh, Supreme Court case this year where uh, residents of Puerto Rico were saying, you know, we should be able to get access to Social Security disability insurance when we become disabled. That's an incredibly important um, funding source. But... Um, because they're a territory, they aren't entitled to that funding source and all, all these other federal programs uh, the way that states are, the, the residents of states are, even if they are U.S. citizens. And so this is just another example of that disparity, except in regard to data collection. Mm-hmm. Is there resistance to this move? So it's interesting. When I talked to Congressman uh, Gregorio Kiwi Sablon, who represents the Northern Mariana Islands, you know, he said that he and the other uh, delegates representing the territories have been trying for years to get some kind of traction on this issue. But the problem is, you know, they ha- they're facing up against the need for funding for it because data collection is- it can be expensive, as well as the um, you know, lack of interest in U.S. territories, as he described it. And part of the challenge is, you know, they U.S. territory residents can't vote for president, and so even these representatives, even though they're in Congress, they're only in the House, so there's no representation in the Senate for um, U.S. territories and their residents, and they're non-voting, and so they just have less sway over, you know, what's being considered, and so even though this is very important to their constituents, um, it may not be important in the broader context of Congress and, and the states, and so getting funding and getting um, political will is are definitely two major challenges to getting this passed. There was a great quote in your article today from Neil Weir, executive director of Equally American, who says, is it harder to collect data in the Aleutian Islands in Alaska than it is in Rota? I don't think so. 
Is it harder? <laughs> I know they're both, uh, you know, semi-remote areas, so I don't know what the exact cost would go into it. But I think his point was basically that the U.S. doesn't blink an eye when it comes to remote areas of states. You know, they just are states, and so it needs to be done, and they these really important um, data are collected. But when it comes to territories, then um, suddenly funding is a huge issue. So what is the status of this legislation? And let's say people who are listening may want to support it in some way. How do they express their, their opinions? So it hasn't moved since it was introduced this summer. And so when I was speaking with um, Representative DeBlon, he said he expects it to take more than one Congress in order for it to pass. Um, I think if anybody is interested in this legislation, has opinions about it, they should talk to their representatives, you know, their representatives in the Senate and in the House. Even if they aren't co-sponsors of the bill, they might be able to um, express support or, you know, raise any questions that you might have about the bill and um, get some conversations going. Thank you so much, Anita, for educating us on this subject today. Very interesting. We'll, we'll keep an eye on it. That was reporter Anita Hoffschneider with today's Reality Check. Read the story online at civilbeat.org. Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. It's about priorities, values, what is viewed as right, what is viewed as good business practice, and so on. What exactly do MBA students learn in business school, and how does that affect the companies they lead? As soon as you have a business school manager, you see a relative decline in wages and labor share. Are MBAs to blame for wage stagnation? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence have the latest on a giant planet that's light enough to float. Here's your weekly stargazer. It's stargazer time, our weekly look into that massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we might be able to spot in our dark skies. As usual, we are so fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and we're turning to him now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. So this week's stargazers, look out for the planet Mars rising in the east around 9 p.m. The moon this week will be a mere waxing crescent, and so conditions will be perfect for stargazing. Now there is news on a bizarre gas giant, apparently. 
It truly is. The Kitt Peak National Observatory in Arizona has helped astronomers uncover the mysterious nature of a gas giant planet located around a distant, cool red dwarf star. This mysterious world caught astronomers' attention due to its low density, which is somewhat equivalent to a marshmallow. And explain that marshmallow part for us. How does it have that kind of density? Well, it sounds kind of weird, right? <laughs> Until we consider that the density of the planet depends on how much material or mass is in a given volume. In this case, the planet has a small rocky core with an enormous envelope of lighter material making up the rest of the gas giant, meaning that its density is actually pretty low. So there is some solid stuff there amidst the gas, yeah? There sure is at the very center, yes. And give us a size to compare it to our own gas giants, if you will, Chris. Well, it's actually pretty similar. Estimates put it at around 100,000 miles in diameter, so slightly larger than the planet Jupiter. It's also very close to its star, with an orbit that lasts just over three days, so it's whipping around at phenomenal speed. Unlike Jupiter, which takes a long time to get around that thing. Yeah? Incredibly. And then back to the marshmallow thing, but kind of looking at it seriously, if it was that kind of density, would it float in water, theoretically? It absolutely would. If you had a bathtub big enough and a complete disregard for physics, <laughs> then this planet would definitely float. <laughs> and finally, is this thing going to be observable with like the uh, JWST, as you like to call the James Webb Space Telescope? That's what astronomers are hoping to do next. By getting observations with JWST spectrographs, we will be able to analyze the atmosphere of this weird marshmallow world. And who knows, it may be made of something sweet. It's Christopher Phillips and uh, another fun and exciting Stargazer report. Thank you. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Information Technology and Communication Primary Facility at McMurdo Station, Antarctica. Committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, ferrarochoi.com. In today's Backyard Quiz, we put the spotlight on Hawaii's oldest school, originally named Lahaina Luna Seminary in 1831. It was begun by Protestant missionaries on land donated by Chiefess Kalakua Hoapiliwahine. This school produced the island's educated class, its lawyers, teachers, and those trusted with important government posts. Today, it remains one of the few public schools in the nation that runs a boarding program. Among its many graduates were David Malo, class of 1835, a renowned historian who recorded the events and people of the Hawaiian kingdom, an intellectual and educator, and the first superintendent of schools. He also served as an advisor to King Kamehameha III. Other recognizable names include musician Kaeli Reichel, class of 1980, and NFL player Hercules Mata'afa, class of 2014, all alumni of Maui's Lahaina Luna School. And we have a winner today. We want to congratulate Quo from Honolulu. We hope you enjoy your complimentary tote bag. Good job. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one to share with us, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Russia invaded Ukraine eight months ago, seemingly unprepared for the fight Ukraine would put up. Zelensky has been remarkable. The top civilian and military leadership of Ukraine has proven to be extraordinarily intelligent, much more intelligent than either the Russians or the Americans yet realize. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store, historian Timothy Snyder on how the war might end. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. This is The Conversation. I'm Lynn Waters, sitting in for Catherine Cruz today. 66 years ago, Lady Bird Johnson, wife of President Lyndon Johnson, planted plumeria trees at the East-West Center in Manoa. It was a nod to her legacy of conservation and beautification of nature. The trees now tower over visitors, having grown past 40 feet. University of Hawaii Professor Emeritus Richard Criley shared that bit of trivia with us. He spent decades studying the popular ornamental. Back in the 1990s, he made one of his most exciting discoveries, using a chemical called ethophon to induce blooms year-round. The conversation's Lillian Song takes us out to Waimanalo, home of the UH Research Station, where Criley did much of his work. Take a look at these stenopetalotypes. Steno meaning narrow, and petala for petals. So this is a narrow petal variety. Wow, their petals are so thin and they're they're so waxy white. Plumeria you would never see in the backyard. True. These are rust resistant sister seedlings. So we are interested in them from the standpoint that could we get rust resistant colored plumerias out of crossing with these. And what is plumeria rust? Uh, I'm trying to see if I can spot some on these trees. It's been so dry lately that rust hasn't developed very much. Well, it looks like orange dust on the underside of the leaf with black spots on the top of the leaf. But it doesn't kill the tree. It doesn't really debilitate it because most of the trees have been producing carbohydrates in their leaves all summer long. And a little rust at the end of the season. Eh. And so there's actually another, an insect that causes more damage to a plumeria to watch out for. Yeah, it's called the plumeria borer. Here's a branch, for example, that had plumeria borer in it. You can see the hole down there near the base. Yes. That's where the insect had chewed its way out after eating its way down the stem. The inside is all pith and that's what the insect grub chews on. And then after it pupates and becomes an adult, it chews its way out, and you can see these round holes. A branch broke off here that was affected, but the rest of the mother branch survived. So it means that the grub that chews out the inside doesn't have to go all the way down. If it feels satisfied with its meal, it'll sit there and pupate and make another beetle. It's a much worse problem than rust. It'll kill a tree or maybe just branches. The adult form flies off after laying its eggs. It doesn't feed on the tree itself. The grub is what feeds on the tree. And it's inside, so chemical sprays can't reach it. There's not a lot of insects that feed on plumeria. Fortunately, we don't have the plumeria caterpillar. There's one in Florida. It's about four to five inches long, and it will defoliate a plant almost overnight. We're very fortunate that we don't have that insect. And because plumerias don't produce nectar, 
they don't produce a lot of pollen. The bees aren't really interested. We don't have a lot of native butterflies that will even try to feed on it. So how do Plumeria get pollinated? That's a really good question. We don't know. I theorize that the tiny, tiny little insects known as thrips get down into the narrow throat. And maybe that's what's doing it, but they have to move from one flower to the next and carry pollen at the same time. This particular plant is a, uh, another species that is called Isabella. When you look at the leaf, it has almost no petiole to it. Petiole. That is the length of what subtends the leaf blade to the stem. That's called a petiole. And Isabella is a nice, low-growing, large green leaf, no rust, white with yellow throat, sets lots of seed pods, destined to be a good parent. Most all of these were planted in 2002, but as we got out towards this end, there were some holes that we filled in, and we still have some holes to fill in yet. So how many rows are we, there? We have 10 rows and 31 plants in a row. Wow, 10 rows, 31 plants each. That's a lot of plants. We'll go up here to plant 21, and then we'll cut across. Okay. It's interesting, some of these are much greener than others. Why is that? It's just the species? species the species type tend to stay green, mm. evergreen. The rubber types by this time of year are getting ready to lose their leaves. They're deciduous. You look the next one up here. Okay. This is the kind of plumeria I'm used to seeing. Yeah, this is the second most common plumeria in Hawaii is the Singapore plumeria. Plumeria obtusa because it has an obtuse leaf, the ending. Obtuse, more rounded? It's blunt, it doesn't come to a point. And when you feel a foliage, feel how tough and leathery it is. Oh, wow. It's very thick. So this is the Singapore variety. And you mentioned yeah. that there was a plot of Singapore plants on the University of Hawaii campus. Yes, we have a planting that was installed in 1960 when Lady Bird Johnson came out to help with the original dedication of the East-West Center. That's exciting history. Yeah. And you can see how big plumeries can get when you look at those because they've been allowed to grow with minimal pruning over the years. How tall are those trees there? At least 40 feet. And here at the research station, though, your trees will never get to 40 feet. These are 20 years old, and they're not even close. But, you know, if you let them go for 60 years, you might get some up there. <laughs> and the purpose of the research station is? Well, this, the station supports Hawaii agriculture in a variety of ways, fruit crops, vegetable crops, and a little bit on ornamental plants. Professor Carly, you identified that for the laymakers, they, they said during the winter into the January months, there is no flowering of plumeria, but they were hoping to perhaps, and you were gonna help them find a solution to getting more flowers during the usual downtime, the resting time of a plumeria tree. True enough, that was one of my objectives when I set out to do plumeria research. And we found that the flowers are initiated basically during the long days of summer. But then when we get into the fall and the leaves fall off the trees, the plant goes into dormancy. And then during December, January, 
into February, there's hardly any flowers available except maybe a few last flowers on the last inflorescences from summer. But if we fool the plant into thinking that it's already time to go into dormancy in September, we can get flowers forced out in late December, January for the tourist trade. We had had some hints of this because the growers used to say, if I hand pick all the leaves off in the fall, I can get some winter flowering. That's a lot of work. I don't know how many attempted it, but I know that there's nobody actively doing it now. I wish there were because it would prove out the, the value of the work that I did and published back in the 1990s, 30 years ago. It's really interesting that you were able to identify that with this chemical application that you could actually induce more flowering. Yeah. Okay, well let's keep going. Oh, this one is a pretty one. What are you called? Gloria Schmidt. Gloria Schmidt? Yeah. Gloria Schmidt was from Kauai. She had a property in Ihea, and Jim Little and I were invited over to see the varieties that she had brought with her from Kauai. And this was one of them that we liked. Mm, this one's a pretty one. Mm -hmm. The leaves, oh, is that some rust on it there? Yes, most of the rubras are rust susceptible. This is Elizabeth Thornton. Elizabeth Thornton was one of the founders of the Plumeria Society of America in Texas. She had quite a large and extensive Plumeria collection, and some of them were collected in Mexico. And I think Mexico is still a good place to collect because the Spanish friars, the missionaries, always would plant them around their graveyards. So they would have had an eye out for good quality flowers. When I go down the Kalani Island Ole Highway, I will see a lot of plumeria. Oh yeah. So that neighborhood, they love their plumeria. Yep, and a good environment, hot and dry. This is a fairly good fragrant plumeria. Wow, okay, that one I smell. <laughs> this one is called San Germain, another one that would be interesting to develop for a colorful form with fragrance and no rust. Do you have any favorite types of plumeria for yourself? Well, there's one variety called Lurleen, which is one of our earliest selections that I like very much. But it's not a heavy bloomer, so I doubt that we've got it in bloom right now. What is it about Lurleen? Uh, it's very rich colored. If you think of the reds and the yellows and their combination as a velvet type of texture, that's kind of what it reminds me of. So that's the payoff working with plants like Plumeria. You get to really experience the wide plethora, the wide mm -hmm. gamut of the plants. I'm seeing a little bee actually floating around. Yeah. You're saying bees don't pollinate them. Some bees are stupid and will still... Are still attractive. Yeah. Understanding that right now, researchers are continuing to look into the rust problem. Well, we're looking at trying to get rust-resistant colored types. 
And a lot of these that are rust resistant, a lot of these species are evergreen and don't lose their leaves during the winter months. How would we then find these trees that you're working on in market? Well, we have to get viable seed from across. We don't have that yet. So if you're looking at nine months from the cross to sowing the seed, and then when that seed germinates two or three years before it has its first flowers to determine if it's worth keeping and then increasing that. So you're probably looking at eight or ten years. So you have to be very patient in this line of work. Plant breeders have to be very patient. What was the most exciting discovery you've had doing this work? The winter flowering, applying the ethophon, which converts in the plant to ethylene, which causes the leaves to fall off, which tricks the plant into not knowing it's got short days, and it starts pushing out the flower buds. All right, learned quite a bit. Anything else you want to share with our listeners? Well, just to be more conscious of the differences that exist amongst the trees in our neighborhoods. And we walk by them and we see yellows and whites and pinks. And people pretty much, it's part of the landscape, we don't think a lot about it. But what makes some of these different from other ones? And it could be the length of the flowering season, the longevity of the flower, its fragrance, things that you don't really observe just as a, a walker by. That was University of Hawaii professor Richard Criley taking Lillian's song from HPR on a walking tour of the UH research station Plumeria plot. Criley's retired now, but he continues to lecture about Plumeria at global conferences and workshops, and he shared this tip with us. When you pick a branch of Plumeria, if you thoroughly wash off the sticky white sap, it'll help the blooms last longer. You can see photos on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we look at a plumeria farm on Molokai. Do you have feedback for us? Please share your comments or questions about what you heard today by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Lynn Waters, in for Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.